Lord, we just sang, yet not I, but through Christ in us. Lord, we want that to be more than a song. We want that to be our constant prayer. That everything we do, that all of our hope, that all of our ambitions and actions and efforts, that all of it would be found in Christ, rooted in Christ, strengthened by Christ, that he would be our all in all. Lord, as we look to this book of Jonah, and we see your wonderful kindness on display yet again, we ask, Father, that we would be renewed in strength in our Lord Jesus Christ. That we would remember, Father, that the ultimate display of your kindness was found in him. And that, Father, as we have been charged to go to the nations, that, Lord, you would allow us to again rely upon your son Jesus Christ and his gospel and the spirit who proceeds from him, Lord, that we might be able to reach those with your message. I pray that you would help us to discern your word today, illuminate our minds, help our hearts, Father, and change us as a people we are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible's passage, the Bible's pages, drip with glowing praise about the wonderful mercy of the Lord. For instance, the prophet Jeremiah called God's mercy to mind after he had experienced a period of great darkness and despair. Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations 3, verses 22 and 23, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And King David spoke of God's mercy as if it were a gentle hand which escorted him around throughout his days on earth. He wrote in that famous psalm, Psalm 23, verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's quite an image. It is clear from the scriptures that God's mercy is something delightful, satisfying, and enduring. It isn't here today and gone tomorrow, but is sustained throughout the entirety of a man's or a woman's existence before him. But God's mercy is mercy indeed because it's a mercy that overcomes his anger. You see, God's holy anger is righteous and fierce towards sinners. It is not an uncontrolled anger like a forest fire which cannot be contained, but it's an ordered measured anger which appropriately matches his holy justice. God is good. He is a good judge who willingly passes firm but proper judgment upon those who are in rebellion against his righteous rule and against his moral character. Like any good judge, he does the right thing by passing right judgment upon lawbreakers. Exodus 15, verse 7. 
In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. This is God. God displays his anger because it is right for God to be angry over sinners. However, God's mercy is both righteous and compassionate. It is compassionate because it comes from his holy heart of infinite love. And it is righteous because his mercy was paid for at an immense cost. So the question we have to ask this morning is, how can I experience God's mercy? How can I, like Jeremiah, experience God's mercy anew each morning? How can I, like King David, have God's mercy follow me around all the days of my life? Well, let's walk through this text of Scripture, and hopefully by the end of it, the answer will be clear. In verses 1 through 2 of Jonah 3, God's word came to Jonah the prophet again. Verse 1, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, if you put chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, right next to chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, you're going to notice several parallels. It seems the author of this book wants us to view chapter 3 as something like a round 2 to chapter 1. In round 1, Jonah thought he could avoid God's path for his life. But here in round 2, Jonah recognizes that the compassionate God will have his way. So if you hold your hand in both places, one hand over in chapter 1, if you're using a physical copy of the Bible, and another hand in chapter 3, notice these parallels. In chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah. In chapter 3, verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah. In chapter 1, verse 2, Jonah was told to arise, go to Nineveh. In chapter 3, verse 2, Jonah was told to arise, go to Nineveh. In chapter 1, verse 2, Jonah was commanded to call out against it. And in chapter 3, verse 2, Jonah was again commanded to call out against it. But there is an important distinction between rounds 1 and round 2. In chapter 3, verse 1, our text, the author tells us that God's word came to Jonah a second time. Now, the first time that God's word came to Jonah, if you recall, Jonah took off. He sought to be free of God's presence. He boarded a ship to the end of the earth. He faced a terrible raging storm. He was thrown by sailors into the sea to quiet that storm. He was swallowed up by a great fish, which actually ended up preserving his life. He prayed a prayer over God's salvation to him. And then he was spit back out onto the dry land. So when the author says the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, 
It is an addition that is loaded with the past hard experience of God's prophets. It's a reminder to us of Jonah's previous disobedience. And it also forces us readers to wonder, especially if it's the first time we've read it. It forces us to wonder, how is Jonah going to respond to the Lord this time? Jonah was again being commanded by God to go to his enemies and call out against them with the Lord's message. This was a warning message. A warning message that implied at least the potential that God's mercy could be shown to them. Now understand, though a great deal had happened in Jonah's life, his enemies, the Assyrians in the city of Nineveh, were the same wicked people as they were back at the beginning of chapter 1. As I shared previously, Pastor Tim Keller provides a succinct account of how the Ninevites cruelly approached those who they conquered in war. Let me state again that this is not for the faint of heart, so I'll try to read it somberly. He writes, after capturing enemies, the Assyrians would typically cut off their legs and one arm leaving the other arm in hand so that they could shake the victim's hand in mockery as he was dying. They forced friends and family members to parade with the decapitated heads of their loved ones elevated on poles. They pulled out prisoners' tongues and stretched their bodies with ropes so that they could be flayed alive and their skins displayed on city walls. They burned adolescents alive. Those who survived the destructions of their city were fated to endure cruel and violent forms of slavery. The Syrians, according to Tim Keller, have been called a terrorist state. End quote. So Jonah was again commanded to go to the people, his hated enemies, with a message from the Lord. Nothing has changed. His attitude towards them hasn't changed. What he knows about them hasn't changed. All of the past experiences that he, that he had seen himself or heard from his ancestors about the Assyrians, none of that has gone away. Exact same enemy, exact same command by God. And in verses 3 and 4, Jonah finally obeyed God's command. It says in verse 3 that Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The contrast between chapter 3, verse 3, and chapter 1, verse 3, is so deliberate that it just has to be pointed out. In chapter 1, verse 3, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. In chapter 3, verse 3, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the words of the Lord. In chapter 1, he disobeyed the God of heaven and earth. In chapter 3, he obeyed the God of heaven and earth. Previously, Jonah arose and fled to get away from the presence of the Lord, which he cannot do. 
And now Jonah arose and went to Nineveh in obedience to the word of the Lord, something he was commanded. So, round one went to God. And now, round two also goes to God. When God calls his people to a task, he will have his good way. He'll move heaven and earth. He'll even create storms and send big fish. And he will have his righteous way. And the wise response of his people should be to obey the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was a great city. But it was about to experience a great fall. Likely, the city of Nineveh was not only large in its city proper, but it had numerous sprawling villages all around it, which spread the city over many miles. And this required a serious time commitment of three days, evidently the text tells us, to journey through it. But in verse 3, when it says that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, the Hebrew should literally be translated as a great city to God. The ESV omits that, unfortunately. It was a large, ancient metropolis, no doubt about it, but it was, more importantly, a great city in God's eyes because he determined, in his wise counsel, to show mercy to it. Not great because it was good, great because God chose to show his goodness to it. He did not have to announce a warning to this evil populous people, but he did. So Jonah began to go into the city. The text does not tell us this, but perhaps he announced God's message all throughout his journey through the town. Nor does the text tell us that the entire message of Jonah, uh, it doesn't tell us the entire message of Jonah here. We're, we're only told only what seems to be the essence of his message, which was, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown or overturned flipped upside down. <laughs> this was a clear message of God's judgment. If they did not repent of their wicked, violent ways, then the city would be overturned and thrown down by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth. As the Lord said back in chapter 1, verse 2, their evil has come up before me. God knew of all of their vile ways, and his judgment was now told to them. The Lord, the perfect righteous judge, was ready to pour out his anger upon them in just 40 days. But they had 40 days, which implies time for repentance. And in verse 5, the Ninevites believed and repented. Verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. First, it says that they believed God, while the translators of the ESV unfortunately elected not to include here in verse 5 is this tiny little preposition in. Literally, the translation is, the people of Nineveh believed in God. If you have a New American Standard Bible, I believe it includes that little preposition. Literally, the people of Nineveh believed in God. Now, we have to be careful not to assume too much with this, but that little preposition in God seems to tell us that their faith in the Lord due to Jonah's preaching was something personal. They were personally cut to the heart over their sin, 
And they believed in God that Jonah's message was not only true, but that they themselves were deserving of God's judgment. Now, good scholars debate the long-term legitimacy of the Ninevites' faith here. After all, this event with Jonah probably occurred sometime early in the 8th century B.C., setting this just a generation or two before the people of Assyria waged war against Israel and even utterly toppled the northern kingdom of Israel. Meaning, how long-lasting could their belief in God actually be if they waged war against and conquered his people within that very same century? So you can understand why some would see this and think that maybe their faith wasn't as solid as some might suppose. So we can't say for sure how long-lasting the effects of Jonah's preaching had upon this nation as a whole. But let me ask, isn't that just like every other people in the Old Testament, including the Jews, who would repent before God but then turn away from him just a few short decades later? Ultimately, there's a lot we do not know here, but verse 5 tells us that they had belief in God, and their belief was marked by repentance. It says they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Sackcloth was a thick, coarse, uncomfortable piece of cloth, which was made from goat's hair, and it was worn in the ancient world symbolically to represent mourning or humiliation or repentance. Well, the people of Nineveh believed in God due to Jonah's message of judgment, and they proceeded to show their repentant hearts before the Lord God by fasting from food and by wearing sackcloth as a symbol of their sorrow. They evidently knew of their guilt. They were aware of their great violence. They understood how vile they had become, and at hearing the word of judgment from the Lord, they chose to turn from their sin. From the very greatest of the people with all of their wealth and their power, to the very least of the people with all of their poverty and their weakness, they demonstrated repentance. They turned from their evil ways. And even more than that, in verses 6 through 9, the Ninevite king led his people in repentance. Notice verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let every man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The word preached by Jonah reached the ears of the king of Nineveh. Now this king, he may have been the king over all of Assyria, or he may simply have been sort of a governor over the city of Nineveh itself. Verse 6 actually allows for either of those to be possible. And the Lord did something astonishing in his heart, because when God's word reached the king, he arose from his throne, and he exchanged one form of clothing for another. He removed his royal robe, and he replaced it with sackcloth. 
What's more, he proceeded to sit in ashes, which was yet another ancient symbol of sorrow and humiliation and contrition. But the king didn't just keep it personal. He made this action national. Along with his nobles, he issued a proclamation throughout the city which would demonstrate the people's repentance before God with the hope that the Lord would relent of his coming judgment. And four things the king and his nobles commanded upon the people. First, the people and even all of their animals of the land were to stay clear of nourishment. So they were to fast for a time, a symbol of contrition before God. Secondly, the people and even the animals were to be covered with sackcloth. They were to also take on the garment that showed their humiliation. And then third, they were to call out mightily or fervently to God himself, asking him to be merciful. And then fourth, they were to turn from their evil ways and from their violent practices. So they were to repent and live lives that actually showed their repentance. And verse 9 tells us the motivation. Who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Jonah knew what God would do, but they say, who knows? They placed their hope in God that he would somehow, some way, show them mercy and relent from his rightful anger over their sin. And in verse 10, that's what God did. He relented of his judgment. It says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. When God saw their repentance from evil, he relented of the disaster that was due to them. They were going to be overthrown, just as Jonah declared, and no doubt as Jonah desired, but now they would not be. They were going to be judged, facing God's mighty wrath for their heinous sin, but now they would not be. They were going to experience utter disaster for their cruel, violent ways against other people, but now they would not experience disaster. They found the mercy of God. But as wonderful as this may sound, and as much as we might esteem the Lord for this, this mercy from God may raise questions in your mind, much like I'm sure were raised in Jonah's mind. If these people were truly so evil, if they were as bad as they were, and if God is truly a righteous God, as I have said and as the Bible makes clear, how then could God just let them What about all of the people that they had hurt? What about what they had done to God's people, Israel, whom he chose to be a people unto himself? Was God just ignoring their sin and failing to bring them to justice? Is there to be no payment for their great sin? My friends, those are actually very fair questions. And there are questions which are actually left somewhat unanswered until we reach later in the Bible. I want you to listen with me to what the Apostle Paul says 
that Jesus accomplished when he died on the cross, shedding his blood, taking God's anger for sin upon himself, paying for the sins of human beings who embrace him in faith, and then rising again three days later. I want you to listen to what Paul says Jesus did when he went to the cross to pay for God's elect people. Listen to Romans 3, verse 23. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, which is a sacrifice that removes wrath, whom God put forward as a propitiation or a wrath-removing sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. Now, there's a lot of big words that we don't have time to get into in what I just read. A lot of good but big stuff there. So let me try to explain it. What the Apostle Paul is telling us in that passage, I believe, is that sinners are only saved through faith in Jesus the one who shed his blood in payment for their sins. That's the only way. Faith in Jesus who shed his blood in payment for their sins. And one of the things Jesus accomplished at the cross was the vindication of God himself. It isn't just that he paid for my sins on the cross. It's that Jesus actually vindicated the name and the reputation of God because prior to his going to the cross, there was a session. How could God keep showing mercy to sinners if he is a just God? How could God keep showing compassion to undeserving people if he is a righteous judge? How many of you would want to have a judge over this land who refuses to obey the laws of justice? No, we want judges who uphold the law. What kind of a God is he if he shows mercy and doesn't uphold his law and show justice? Well, one of the things that Jesus accomplished at the cross was the vindication of God himself. Jesus' death, as he says in chapter 3 of Romans, shows God's utter perfect righteousness because though God had previously passed over the former sins of certain people, showing them great mercy, those sins of those people were eventually paid for. And they were paid for by the shed blood of God's only son, Jesus, who took all of God's righteous anger toward himself on himself. So those sailors, who repented and made sacrifices, believing in God in chapter 1, after they had thrown Jonah overboard. Those men were vindicated and shown the mercy of God because a couple of thousand years later, actually 700 years later, 
God chose to send his son, Jesus Christ, who shed his blood to pay for their sins. Past sins of sinners, future sins of sinners. So God was able to show mercy to these repentant Ninevites because the sins of these Ninevites, just as the sins of all of those who repent and believe, were later paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. If you say, well, God's not just, he should have shown justice to them, you answer by saying, God did show justice. He put the anger and the wrath and the judgment that they deserved, and he instead put it upon his perfect, worthwhile son, the one who never committed any sins, the one who did never any of the heinous things that those people did. Jesus paid their sin debt, and God, the glorious judge, is satisfied in his justice. Jesus paid the sin debt of the Ninevites same way he paid the sin debt for you. Now earlier, I stated that there's a question we have to ask here. How can I experience God's mercy? How can I have his compassion for myself? And here's the answer. The unbridled compassion of God is realized when great sinners repent and believe in God. The unbridled compassion of God is realized when great sinners repent and believe in God. And today, through a full gospel message, which is to spread across this entire globe, this unbridled compassion, this unhindered mercy of the Lord, is realized when great sinners repent and believe in God's Son, Jesus Christ. It has always been by repentant faith in God. And now we have the full message of Jesus Christ broadcast, and we go and tell people, you must believe in God, the Son, Jesus Christ, and if you will believe, you will be saved. So if you want the mercy of God, turn from your sins and believe in the provision of God, the person Jesus Christ. Let me give you three applications before we go to the table. First of all, you have to agree with God that you are a Ninevite if you are to receive God's mercy. You have to agree with the God of the Bible that you are a Ninevite if you are to receive God's mercy. Let me tell you what I mean by that. The Ninevites were a sinful people who had wronged God. And the only way they could receive mercy is if they repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only way you and I as sinners can receive God's mercy is if we also repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sinful outward actions are but sad symptoms of our corrupted inner hearts. Matthew 15, verses 18 and, 18 and 19, Jesus says, What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. He says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. The ultimate human problem is not a problem of actions and words. The ultimate human problem is a matter of the heart. It's corrupt and broken and dark. And though we may not all perform the same level of evil outward actions such as the Ninevites did, 
All of us sin against God out of hearts that are corrupt before him. We all share the same broken heart condition, which leads to many sinful actions. And the proper measure of our sinfulness, as much as our world tells us otherwise and directs us to point to other people to evaluate ourselves, the proper measure of our sinfulness is not a comparison with other human beings. It is not to say, well, the Ninevites were that bad, I'm not that bad, I'm fine. It is not a measure of our sinfulness in comparison to other human beings. The proper measure of our sinfulness is a comparison to God's holy character. And to this, each and every one of us in this room and each and every person outside of this room has fallen short. Therefore, we are all of us Ninevites. We have to agree with God about our sickness if we are to receive from God his merciful remedy. This is the usual problem that people have that keeps them from coming to the Lord. They want God to be the God who will give them good things. They want God to be the God who will help them in various areas of their lives. But they don't want God to be the one who shows them what their true heart is. And they don't want to repent of their true heart. And they don't want to embrace Jesus as the only solution to their true heart. Don't be like that. My friend, you are like me, and you're like every other human being. Your heart is corrupted by sin. You have fallen into it, and it has enslaved you. But through God, a remedy is provided. His son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross and rose again so that you could have a heart that is transformed with all of your sins forgiven, his spirit imparted unto you as a gift so that you might learn to walk in his ways, being fully secure that in Jesus Christ, one day you will have face-to-face -face fellowship with God's Son himself. Jesus does this for people who recognize that they're Ninevites. If you don't see that, you can't know God's mercy. Secondly, you who believe in the God of the Bible must humble yourselves and turn to him anew when you sin. If you're one of those people who believes in the God of the Bible, you must humble yourselves and turn to him when you sin. The Christian's ongoing battle with the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life continues to be waged, doesn't it, friends? As Romans 8.13 tells us, we are to put to death the deeds of the body. Though the Spirit of God is given to us, we fight in His strength. And through the Spirit of God, we are to go to war with our sinful desires and thereby wage war against our sinful words and our actions. Through God's Word, through the power of the Spirit and prayer, we attack our hearts and we attack the things that come from our hearts. And this is a lifelong battle for all believers in Jesus Christ. And my friends, as we, I think all of us will admit, we will lose some of those skirmishes. We will sin. Christians sin. People who have embraced Jesus Christ, the God of the Bible, still sin. But we must humble ourselves with modern-day sackcloths 
whenever we sin against this merciful God who saves, there are humble steps that believers in Christ are commanded to take in the scriptures whenever they sin. We're not told to go and sit in a little mound of ashes. We're not told to put on sackcloth like the Jews and like the people of Nineveh did. But we are given steps of what to do when we sin. For instance, 1 John 1.9 says to Christians, if we confess our sins, the implication is we're going to sin, sadly. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Brother and sister, we, in Jesus Christ, if and when you sin, you must confess it to the Lord. And that does not mean that you have some mindless, heartless, verbal confession. It means that your heart, stricken over your sin, goes to God and says, Lord, I agree with you about my sin. It is wrong. It is vile. I hate it. Please forgive me, Lord. And when you do, he does. In Jesus Christ, the Christian sins are forgiven. And as you walk through this life in a life of repentant confession, God continues to forgive you of your sins. It's wonderful. But he's a God that does not just forgive us once and forever, but he's a God that as we go through life doesn't just leave us alone, but he keeps us going back to him where we enjoy his forgiveness anew and fresh. We don't lose our salvation status with God, but we go to God whenever we sin so that we can again enjoy that right relationship of fellowship that comes from a life of holy walking with him. So when we sin, we confess it. But there are also times when our humility take, needs to take a, an extra step. And we recognize that though we're confessing sin, we keep on falling into the exact same ones. Keep on gossiping. We keep on clicking onto the image. And we keep on bringing into the same garbage into our hearts, into our lives. And we keep on sinning. And so God gives us passages like James chapter 5, verse 16, that says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. You see, we're not meant to fight sin on our own. As we say here a lot, there are no Lone Ranger Christians. No Christian is meant to be out on their own. We fight sin as a church family. We join local churches. Not just to come quickly at the beginning and leave quickly before it ends. We join local churches so that we connect with people so that they can call us out on sin. We can help them with their sin. And when we're struggling, we can confess it and pray and we can see healing come to our lives. This is how we humble ourselves. Forget the sackcloth. Go find your brother or sister in Christ and tell them all the tough stuff that you're dealing with that seems to be enslaving you in your life right now. Do that. See how God works. Third this morning, you who are called by the God of the Bible to go to Nineveh must obediently embrace your commission. My friends, do you realize that the people of Newport Ritchie, Florida, your neighbors and your friends, and the citizens of West Pasco County, those who pay taxes just like you and send their kids to school right here in your community, do you know that these people have X amount of days until they too will be overthrown? Do you know that there is a day of judgment that is coming? We don't know when. 
We have not been given a 40-day window. But God's hand of righteous judgment will come upon sinners. And unless sinners repent and believe in God, Jesus Christ, they will perish under his anger. And rightfully so. I deserve his wrath. They deserve his wrath. I've embraced Jesus. They must embrace Jesus. My friend, do you think in these terms about our world? Do you get bogged down in the little political skirmishes of our day? Or do you recognize what the real issue is? That there are droves of people who live within one square mile of you who will die in their transgressions and sins. And God has put you right where you are to be a light. It doesn't mean he's gifted you like everybody else. It doesn't mean he's given you the task of saving people. It means he's made you a light right where you are because there are X amount of days and his judgment will come. But before we arise and go to our Nineveh as a light to them, I think we must first bow down and pray for our Nineveh. There isn't prayer in this passage, chapter 3. It's prayer throughout the Bible. But I'm taking a little bit of a liberty here in this application and saying that if we are to go to our Nineveh, we have to first bow down and pray for our Nineveh. I have no ability to see them turn and embrace the Lord. No matter how much I preach, no matter how passionately, fervently, it has no power whatsoever, and neither do you. But prayer is power. And if we want to see the people of Newport Ritchie who send their kids to the schools that we send our kids to, you want to see the people of Newport Ritchie who are the neighbors who are around you, who are in the Little League and who are a part of the organization, you want to see those people come to Jesus Christ, you've got to pray for them. It's not by accident that I bring that up, of course. This week, we begin our week of prayer as a Christian church. In this week of prayer, we have a little prayer guide. It's right outside in the foyer if you have not picked one up yet. On each day of the week, we're having various things that we're asking you to pray for especially. To set aside some time. Sometime, sometimes on your own. Sometimes with your family or with a friend at church. Sometimes coming together with God's people, like we're going to do next week on Sunday morning at 8.45 a.m., and praying. And one of the most important things that this guide is going to ask you to pray for is for the lost people, the droves of people who live within just a few miles of this building and your homes who need Jesus Christ. If we care about the Ninevites around us even a smidge more than Jonah cared about his, we will beseech the God of mercy that he would show them his compassion. So, will you pray with us this week? Finally, we must go to those around us through one gospel conversation at a time. We must go to those around us by opening up the Bible's message with one study, with one person at a time. And we must take the gospel message to the lost by sending one missionary after another. It is for us who have been charged with this commission to go and to spread the good news about Christ. Do so one person at a time. I'm thankful to hear about all of the many gospel conversations that have been recorded over the last year, 
even a couple this week, even this, on this weekend, of people who heard the gospel because of people of Riverside telling them about Christ. It's exciting to see that we're helping plant a church up in Spring Hill that primarily Spanish-speaking people are going to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's exciting all of our missionary endeavors that God is doing. Let us be fervent in prayer and devoted to the commission that Jesus has given us. And let us as a church family arise and go to our Nineveh. Lord God, thank you that we've had this privilege of opening up your word. And though, Lord, it is a hard challenge, we recognize that we do this, that we seek to do this, Lord, in the power of the Holy Spirit given into us through the work of Jesus. Help us, I pray, to be bold. Help us to be prayerful. I pray that you'd help us to reach others with Christ. I pray, Lord, that you'd also help us to be the type of Christians who quickly confess our sins when we sin. And that, Father, we would be the kind of Christians who humbly ask others to help us when we sin and to pray with us when we sin. Furthermore, I pray that everyone in this room would see themselves as a Ninevite who needs to humble himself or herself, repent of their sins, and believe in your provision in Jesus. I pray that you would do that, Lord. You are the only one who can do those wonderful things, and so we proclaim it for you.